0: Let's take our Bibles and let's stand together out of respect for God's word this evening. Let's turn our scriptures to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. All right, in Mark chapter 8, we're going to begin reading at verse 34. Mark chapter 8 and verse 34. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel's, the same shall save it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray that you'll help us now again as we look into the word of God and give us a revival again and take us again one step closer that by the end of the week not one uh, stone would be unturned that you wanted turned over this week. That not one message would be left out that you want given this week. And Lord, as we're seeking revival, we know that it is something that um, we do our best, but it has to come from you. So Lord, tonight, we look to you to bless us with the word of God. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you, and you can be seated. Have you ever felt like somebody was asking a little bit too much of you? I remember taking a teenager out to eat one time that I was trying to uh, make an impact on, And so I took him out to eat, and I said, get anything you want. And so he ordered his meal. And when it was done, I said, is there anything else you would want? So we ordered uh, an extra sandwich. And then I said, is there anything else you would want? And he would already had a sandwich, a second sandwich, French fries, and a Coca-Cola. He said, I'd kind of like to have a shake. So I bought him a shake. And I'm not making this up. When that was done, then I bought him a sundae. And I'm not making this up. Then he said, um, would you mind taking me to Walmart? I said, why? He said, well, I kind of went to get some batteries for my radio. Do you mind buying some batteries for my radio? And I thought he was asking a little bit too much of me then, don't you kind of? So I said to him, well, you know, I just kind of wanted to take you out to talk to you about something. And I bought you a meal and everything because I just wanted to. But no, I, I don't think so. I... I think i bought you enough, and so I did not buy him the batteries. But, I did get to win him to Christ in the end, so it turned out really well. But then, after that was done, my son actually called me and said, Dad, before you come home, could you buy me some batteries at Walmart? (laughs) Now that happened, and I thought for a second, should I buy him for him, or should I not? Because I didn't buy him for the other fellow. Would it be fair if I did or if I didn't? And then I thought, oh wait a minute, that's my son. There's a little difference there. So I said to him, sure, I'll get you batteries. What size do you need? And I didn't even tell him about the first young man who wanted batteries that I denied him of. Now, why did I buy him for my son? Because he's my son. And the other one, I tried to be nice to, but there's something different about your son. Now, sometimes it might seem like somebody asks a little bit too much of us, but it depends on the person who's asking it. Now, my wife doesn't ask anything of me, hardly at all. Well, she does. Ask, she does ask me to do some to-do things. But really, I would want to do anything that she would want me to do. In fact, when I pray for my wife, I pray about my relationship with her. I'm not trying to be anybody's a big shot up here, but I really think this is the way we all ought to act as men. I pray, Lord, don't let me fail her in one area. And I'll pray, God, she doesn't even have to know what I do for her. I just want to make sure I get it done. That when we get to heaven, I didn't fail her in one area. Now, I would do anything I could to make my wife's better, my wife's life better. And I think that that is an easy thing for me to do because I love her, right? Now, when somebody feels like God is asking too much of them, They need to reconsider that. Now, have you been somebody who's felt like serving God is good, but I'm not going to get stuck at doing this? Or serving God is great, but I'm not going to get committed on Saturday doing that. That's my time. And we've talked about the me time and all that stuff, and we don't want to be lukewarm Christians, right? Now, on the other hand, busyness is not equal to spirituality. Now, just because somebody's busy, that doesn't mean they're spiritual. And so don't think, well, I'm busy, 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 busy. I'm spiritual. No. Spirituality is something that has to do with our heart, our motives, our love. We don't want to pretend to love. We want to genuinely love. We don't want to pretend to love God. We want to genuinely love God. Spirituality and busyness are different. But if somebody is a spiritual person, they're not going to say, well, I'll serve God, but I'm not getting stuck in a certain place. Because when we are spiritual and when we are in love with God, genuinely, we'll do anything. Because we will never think that the one that we know died to save us from our sins, that we believe this did happen. We would never, ever really think that he's ever asking too much of us. Because he died for us, then the least that we could do is live for him. Now, I'm going to speak to us tonight about this passage. Jesus said, if you are going to come after me, I'm going to, I want you to come after me. But if you're going to come after me, you're going to have to do something. And so I'm going to talk to us about this, and it's not necessarily a alliterated outline, but a thought progression. Now, the first thing I want you to look at is what he asked of his disciples and what he's asking of us all, if we are truly going to follow him. Notice verse 34 in the red ink section. Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So what did he say that they need to do to genuinely follow him? They've got to deny themselves. They've got to die to themselves. Now, to deny yourself means you have to want something before you can be denied of it. When I was first interested in dating my wife Becky at the time, I was asking her out the first time I was flatly denied. Now, I had to want to go out with her, before she could be denying me of going out with her. Now, later, she came to her senses, and she married me. But what is it that you would want to do if Jesus didn't want you to do something different? Now, there are some things that I might want to do in my own flesh. I don't, but I would want to do them maybe. I don't know. But I think that Jesus would want me to do something different. So then I have to decide, am I going to follow Jesus? And I have to decide, do I want to follow Jesus? And my answer is, yes, I want to follow Jesus. And then to do that, then I've got to deny myself of what I'm wanting to do that he doesn't want me to do. Does that make sense? You've got to want something before you can deny yourself of it. And it's natural for us to want to do certain things because we're human but then we're to be spiritual so we have a decision am I going to follow Jesus and if I am I have to not do what I want to do this time and I have to do what he wants me to do now what kind of beverage would I want to drink if I could drink anything I've never drunk it so I really don't know that I would but I used to think I wish I could drink some wine now why did I ever want to drink wine because I like the commercials on TV, there's this beautiful woman, this handsome man, and there's this goblin, and it's got this color in it, and they move it around like this, and they talk about how romantic it is. So I'm thinking in my head, okay, beautiful woman, my wife, handsome guy, me, sitting in front of a fireplace, soft music, beautiful woman, swooning over man, me, romantic man, me, and all of this stuff. And so I'm thinking, if I could drink anything, I'd wanted to try wine. But I never did, and I'm not going to. Why? Because I don't think Jesus would want me to. Now, when I look at any kind of music I might like, there are some things I grew up in high school, but I had to say, okay, if I'm going to follow Jesus, I just can't do this anymore. Now, when we look at Jesus, in order to follow him, we're going to have to do maybe what he wants us to do with our Saturday mornings, okay? And we might have some things we want to do with our Saturday mornings, but God might have something He wants us to do with our Saturday mornings. Now, God is not probably going to have every one of you feeling guilty if you do not go to Saturday morning visitation. Some of you can hardly walk. Others of you cannot ever have a spare moment to yourselves. But there are a lot of people that could, and the Holy Spirit would say, you should, and you should. And then you've got to decide, am I going to do what the Holy Spirit wants me to do, what God wants me to do with my Saturday morning? Or will I deny myself of what I want to do and do what He wants? Or will I do what I want to do? Now, there is this thing, we've talked about it, faithfulness is not coming like it used to be. You guys are being faithful. I'm not saying that we're all better than anybody who's not here, but you guys are being faithful, okay? But a challenge is, what about these other things like Sunday school and Wednesday nights? Deny yourself of what you might normally want to do in order to do what God wants you to do. Now, Luke was a doctor. How much money did doctors make? I don't know, but it was probably more than what most people made. But Jesus said, deny yourself of what that comfort might bring and I want you to come and follow me and be my disciple. And he did. James and John were the sons of Zebedee and that meant Zebedee was a fisherman. He had a fishing industry. So they probably would have inherited their dad's fishing industry and been wealthy. But he said, leave it. I want you to leave your nets, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And they did. And then... There were other people like the Apostle Paul. Everything that he had he counted but loss for Christ. And they denied themselves of things. Why? Because Jesus was the one asking them to do it. Now for us to follow Jesus, we're going to have to deny ourselves of some things that we might want to do. Young people, what do you like in your life that God doesn't like in your life? So it's always been this way. you got to make a decision. I'm going to go after Christ, and I guess this means this. I will deny myself maybe the thing I want to do and do what God wants me to do. And that could be anything from uh, any area, from dating God's way instead of the way you want to. Who you date instead of the one you want to date. How you respond to your parents instead of how you really feel like responding to your parents. And as adults, what you do, what you drink, what you listen to, how you act, what you do with your Saturdays, and what you do with your Sundays, and what you do in every area of your life. The same is true of me. So what is he asking us to do if we're going to come after him to deny ourselves of what we would normally want to do and do what he wants us to do? Just like with my wife, sometimes I've got to deny myself of what I might normally want to do with my time and just go ahead and do that thing that she needs done or wants done. That's because she's asking me to do it. I'll I'll do that. I think that we do not deny ourselves very often anymore when it comes to following Christ. And so we've got to change our thinking And if it's pointed out, we need to do it because he is the one asking us to do it. Now, first of all, there's what he asked the disciples. And these are the men and women who follow Jesus, the ones that were the greatest servants of God. Now, the second thing in this passage I want us to look at is before he asked them that, he asked them another question. And this changed me a little bit. All right, turn in your Bibles back now to verse 27 And before he ever asked his disciples if they wanted to come after him, if they would, that they would deny themselves, that they would die to what they want to do and follow Christ, he asked them a previous question that I want to draw to our attention, verse 27. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the town of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, so he's asking them a question saying to them, Whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But some say, Elias. And others said, One of the prophets. So the answer was, some think you're Elijah because you're powerful miracles. And another spoke up and said, Some think you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. That is what I think Herod was wondering about. And then others think, I don't know who he is. I just know he's, he's some kind of a prophet because of all the miracles he does. Like Nicodemus said, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. No man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. So they all had opinions of who Jesus was. Now then he asked, who do you say that I am? All right, now notice verse 28. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answered and said unto him, Thou art the Christ. Now notice that Peter's response has a definite article in front of it. Now, young people, you remember what a definite article means? It's describing um, that there is only one. And he's saying, The Christ. Now, he's saying that I know who you are. You are the Messiah. You are the only hope for the world. You are the only one who can save. And he's in essence saying you're the one that's prophesied in the Old Testament that we've been waiting for. Now, that's getting settled in their mind. Then, once they knew who he was, then he realized they were ready now. Once they got deep down inside convinced that they were following the right person, then he realized he could ask them to deny themselves and to serve him, and he has a good reason for that, and it's not a selfish reason, but it is a good reason for the good of men and for the glory of God, but also for the good of those men, those disciples, but the point is they had to know they were following the right person. Now, a person's opinion of who Jesus is determines the level of his or her dedication. Now, not trying to bore you, but I'll say it again. The opinion that you've got of who Jesus is will determine how dedicated you'll be to Jesus. Now, when I was in Israel, I handed a tract to someone, a Jew. And he went his way, and in about five minutes, he came back to find me. Now, when he came back to find me, it wasn't to say, hey, can you explain to me more about Jesus? He had a different view of Jesus, so he came back to yell at me. So he came back, and I heard him yelling, you, sir, you, sir! And I turn and look, and he's looking right at me. And he walks up to me, he says, you, sir, God damn you to hell. That's what he said to me, and I'm not cursing, that's what he said, for trying to make a Jew be converted to follow Jesus. Now then he took that track and he ripped it up, threw it on the ground, spit on the ground, and he said again, God, send you to hell for trying to convert a Jew to be a Christian, and he stomped off in anger. Now why was he so angry? It's because he had a different opinion of who Jesus was than I do. Now, he thought Jesus was an imposter. Now, I look at the Muslims, we look at the Muslims, and they have a different opinion of who Jesus is. So for them, they're dedicated to Allah. I am dedicated to Jesus. Why? Because I believe that I know who he is. And I believe that he is the Messiah. Now, we all have to have this completely in our head that Jesus really is the, the Messiah. Because you're not going to change teenagers, things that you like, that God doesn't like. You're not going to change those until you are convinced like I was and still am, but I became as a young man. I wanted to preach when I was fifth grade. I'm not saying you have to preach, but I am saying if God wants you to preach, you have to preach. But what I am saying is, as a young guy, I got convinced that I was following the right person. And as I got older, I wondered, am I brainwashed? Is this because my mama said it? Or do I really believe beyond any shadow of a doubt that I'm believing the right way? Now we all have to be convinced of that or we're not going to be dedicated like we need to be. If we're not confident that if people don't get to Jesus, if we believe he's the only way, and why would we ever want to give up our Saturday mornings to just get people to come to church so we have a bigger crowd and feel good? Or to snatch the souls of man from the burning? If we believe that Jesus is just a religious figure and we say, yeah, I believe he's the Messiah, yeah, but we're not convinced deep down inside that he is almighty omnipotent God, then we're not going to come for a permitting and take it seriously enough to actually come because we don't have this convinced mind and heart that he is almighty, that he is omnipotent, all-powerful. And until we get convinced that he is who he is, then we're not going to be any better than what we've been. Now, we all say that we believe it, but let's look down and just affirm it. I know we believe it, but we need to believe it Again and again and when the devil throws doubts we need to believe it again because we can because it's true. Take your Bibles and turn over to Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 53 you have the Old Testament prophecy. We read this a little bit in chapel the other day young people but I want to look at it again. Okay now Isaiah 53 is a messianic prophecy written 712 years before Jesus was ever born. And it said that there was going to be somebody who would take away the sins of the world. Now notice verse 11. It says, he, meaning God the Father, shall see the travail of his soul, the suffering servant, the suffering Messiah, and shall be satisfied. So this Messiah's suffering is going to satisfy God the judge, the Father, and the sin debt is going to be paid in full. Now then he goes on and he says, by knowledge of him shall my righteous servant, the Messiah, justify, make righteous many. For he, the Messiah, shall bear the iniquity. So we say, hey, Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. And we go, yes, we believe Jesus saves, but we don't want to be weird about it. And I think when we get in our minds, we don't want to be weird about it. We don't want to talk too much about it, make it too awkward. Sure, we'll talk, but we don't want to be weird about it. It's because I think even though we say we believe Jesus saves, we still have just a little bit of reservation Our We really believe in this, and it's, it's something to never be ashamed of. Now the only way that it's something to never be ashamed of is if we are 110% confident we're right. Then there's nothing ever to be ashamed of or to hold back about. Now let's go on and it says verse 12. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he hath poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So in short, somebody is going to be sent by God to the earth and take away the sins of people. Now, we say that this is Jesus. But are we right? Yes. But let's look at why we know we're right and nail it down without any doubt, and let's just work through this and enjoy this as something to build our faith. All right, now look again at verse 5. We're going to back up in the passage. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. So somebody's going to be wounded for us. Somebody's going to be bruised for our sins. The chastisement of our peace, the punishment that we should have for our iniquities and transgressions is upon him. And then it begins to go to the details where we know that we're following the right one that was not even alive when this was written. 720 years he was born later, 712 years later. And what is the first clue that we're following the right one in the end of verse 5? And with his stripes, we are healed. Now stripes, just a reminder to us, is, is somebody being beaten with a cat of nine tails. The handle with nine leather strips, on the end of those leather strips, tied pieces three or four inch long, sharp rock, bone, and metal. They would take a man, tie him, spread eagle in the air through four rings. Roman soldiers would pull it back, and they would pull it back with a mighty arm, and they'd whip it across his back. When they did it, they would snap it, and the leather would snap and shoot the bone, rock, and metal right into a man's back. Once it was in there, they would jerk it. It would take nine tracks of flesh off with it. Usually they would beat a man 13 times from the left side, tearing flesh here and 117 stripes of skin ripped off. Then they would go to the other side and they'd whip him 39, uh, 13 times from the right side and they'd pull it back as it would dig into the skin, it would be 117 stripes of skin ripped off in that direction. Then they would beat him from the straight down the center direction Ripping flesh this way, this way, this way, and after the beating a man's back would look like hamburger meat. Now, the Bible teaches that whoever it is is going to take away people's sins is going to be beaten with stripes. Question Was Jesus beaten with stripes? We're following the right person. Now, then it goes on in verse 7 it says, He was oppressed, He was afflicted, yet He opened not his mouth. And in the end of verse 7, before his shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Now, it prophesied that whoever the Messiah is, he's going to come, he's going to be bruised. He's going to be taking the sins of many on him. And the first clue that you've got the right person is he'll be beaten with stripes. The second clue is when he's being beaten, he's not going to argue, he's not going to fight it, and he's not going to defend himself. Now, we remember when Jesus stood in front of the council that was trying to put him to death, he didn't say a word. And you remember when Pilate asked him, Answerest thou nothing? We're following the right person. And if we get in our head that we're being weird, then we will not be witnesses because we'll be weird about it. And if we're convinced that he is really the only hope for the world, then why would we be feeling weird about telling people what they really need? But we've got to be convinced about it. And it's not going to get over all of our fears. It's not going to make us become super powerful, bold as aligned witnesses, maybe all at once. But it might point our nose in the right direction. When we get convinced beyond any shadow of a doubt that we are following the right person, we're not just brainwashed. We're not just believing grandma's religion, quote unquote. We're not just holding on to tradition because we like it. That wouldn't be very smart. But we are holding the tradition that Jesus is the one who saves because he is. Now then we go on and we find again in verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth and get it, he is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. So, how do remember John the Baptist helped us out with this one? He looked in the Bible, it says in John chapter 1, he looked at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. Now what is he referring to? Isaiah 53. Somebody is going to take away people's sins. So he's referring to it, and he is saying, The lamb to the slaughter, as Isaiah prophesied, watch, there he is. And he was saying this for affirmation, because people needed to know that they were following the right person, because they never be dedicated on a higher level until they were convinced that it was really the Messiah. Now as you continue, look at verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. I went to Israel, I went to Caiaphas's hall, and the guide told me, let's go in the prison. And so we all went to the prison. And I'm looking for bars, there were none. And then we gathered around him and he says, this is the prison. And all I saw was some kind of a hole in the ground that they'd covered up. And they said, this is the prison where Jesus spent his last time on earth. I said, what do you mean? And he says, well, let's go down the stairs. So we went down the stairs and they said, the prisons back then were not bars necessarily, but they would lower somebody down into a pit that they had hewn out with a rope, like they did with Jeremiah. And so we went down in that prison and he said, this is where Jesus was spent all night when he was in Caiaphas' hall. And when it was done, he said, Mike, come here. And he said to me, what's the wall look like? He said, tell me what you think that material is. And I said, it looks like clay. He said, you're right. We call it miry clay. Now, how many remember the passage? You brought me up also out of a horrible pit out of the miry clay. Well, that's in the Bible. Well, miry clay, he said... Is some kind of clay that we still use today to make plaster. And whenever we use it, we put gloves on our hands because if we have any kind of water on our hands and we come in contact with my clay, it will burn our skin. Some kind of chemical relation uh, of going on. So he said, even today, we always wear rubber gloves. And so he said, you know, Jesus spent his time here before he died and he was sweating. There was no chair to sit on, so he was wet. So if he sat down, he would have had to lean against the wall with a wet back. And he says, you know, Jesus had been beaten, so he was bleeding. So he would have wet skin from the blood, wet skin from the sweat. And so he said, here Jesus was put until he was finally taken off to the cross. And he said, Jesus would have spent his last several hours in this really room burning, burning. His skin would have been burning for hours. I didn't know that. But as the Bible prophesied that the Messiah was going to be taken from prison, he was. And then from judgment, and the judgment could mean, could mean, what I saw on the door of Caiaphas's hall, it says something in Hebrew, and I said, what's it mean? And he said, that reads judgment hall. So the Bible prophesied that whoever the Messiah is going to be would be beaten with stripes. Was Jesus beaten with stripes? He would never defend himself. Did Jesus defend himself? He would be called the Lamb. John called him the Lamb. He would be taken from prison. Christ was. He would be taken from judgment. Christ was. And as I said to you young people, on the very first day, there is a what? God. Okay, everyone. of you, there is a? And the Bible is his what? And how can we be confident the Bible is his book? Adults, how can we be confident the Bible is his book? One reason is fulfilled prophecies. Now, it goes on and it says in verse 9, He made his grave. No man takes my life. I lay down my life for the sheep. Fulfilled prophecy. With the wicked, who was crucified on both sides of Jesus, the two thieves. And with the rich, whose grave was Jesus buried in the rich man's tomb. So all of these are affirmations that we are not having blind faith. We are following the right person. All right, now let's turn back to Mark chapter 8, and we'll begin to wrap this up. Now, first... We looked at what he asked them to do, deny yourself. Now, if you're going to follow Jesus and I'm going to follow Jesus, we have things that we normally might want to do. We might normally want to do something with our Saturdays. We might normally want to do something different than maybe what God is prompting us that we should do. That could be with visitation, but that could be somebody who wants you personally to visit. I don't know. We have things we might want to do. I might want to listen to certain kinds of music I used to, but I don't because I think God would not want me to. I might want to drink something that maybe I shouldn't, but I don't because I don't think Jesus would want me to. You might want to respond to your parents a certain way, but if you're following Jesus, you won't go with what you feel like you're doing and do what he wants you to do. You might want to date a certain person because they look good in your flesh, likes what you see and likes what you get and likes that, but you know God does not. So to follow Jesus, you've got to deny what you want sometimes in your flesh and do what God wants. That's following Jesus. But then... Before he ever asks us to deny ourselves of anything, he asks, who do you believe that I am? And we have to be convinced of who he is. I bought the batteries for my son because of who he is. He's my son. I will do anything because she's my wife. Anything she needs. If I can. Don't always get it right. And then the Holy Spirit reminds me, wait a minute that's your wife, straighten up, take care of this, and so what we have to do is understand who he is that's asking us to do these things, does your youth pastor really, uh, does your youth pastor want you to change this and change that, that, technically, not your youth pastors on the level of God, but if he's getting something from God to tell you it's really God who's asking you to do it, does that make sense? Does it? Okay. Now, let's go back to Mark chapter 8, what he asked them, before he asked them, and then I want you to see why he asked them. Now, notice verse 35. After you deny yourself, I want you to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, and here's why. Verse 35, for whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed. When he cometh in the glory, he's coming again. Do we believe it? The Bible says it. So it's true. He's coming again in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. Now, why did He want His disciples to deny themselves and follow Him? Why does He want us to? There are three reasons, and I will be done with just a little application at the end. First reason is for our own sake. Now, if you save your life, you lose it. If you lose your life, you'll save it. Now, if you save the life that you want and you're dating somebody that God doesn't want, you're going to lose your life. You will get in a marriage that doesn't work. But if you'll lose the life that you think you want and you will take the life that God really wants, you'll get in a marriage that will be great and you will save your life. Does that make sense? Now, if you hang on to the life that you want, well, I just need this. I got to smoke. I got to smoke. Got to have my smokes because I'm just so stressed. Listen, God doesn't want you to have your smokes. So get rid of those and go with what God will want you to do. So deny yourself of what you might think you want or think you need and do what He says is the way to handle your stress. Biblically, cast your burden upon the Lord and He will sustain thee. God works all things together for good to them who love God. Don't look at what you don't understand in life. Look at what you do know about God to be true. And look at the spiritual way to get through things instead of the worldly way. And guess what? You get rid of those cigarettes, you just might save your life. But if you hang on to those cigarettes, you might just lose your life. You save your life, you say, Well, I'm going to hang on to this alcohol. I'm not going to stop it, it's not hurting anything. All you preachers, bunch of hot air. Let me tell you one reason I preach against alcohol. The Bible says to. Enough. Well, let me tell you other reasons. I've seen its destruction. I was in a meeting, Chapel, North Carolina. I'm driving down the road, and this car sped past me. And so when it sped past me, I was talking on my cell phone to my sister-in-law. And when I knew this guy was going crazy... I said, i got to go. I hung up, grabbed the steering wheel with two hands, watched this guy swerve this way, this way. I'm going 70. He's going probably 90. And then he hit the median, and he rolled the vehicle, and it landed upside down. So I stopped. I got out, and I looked inside to see if anybody was in there. The car was smoking. I thought there was going to be an explosion. I could die if I look in this thing. But I thought, I've got to see if somebody's in there. So I look inside, just to see if there's anybody that I need to pull out, and I didn't see anybody in there, but I did see a a whole lot of Corona beer bottles. A whole lot of them, empty in the back seat, and I realized that it had been drinking and driving. And so anyway, I look for the body, and I don't see anything, and about 100 yards back, I see something that might be a body, so I start running toward that, trying to take in, are there any other bodies thrown out of the vehicle? that need help, and I didn't see any, so I certainly hoped that there weren't. But anyway, I found this man. He was no doubt the driver, and he was ejected from the automobile because of intoxicated driving, and as I looked at him and I assessed his body, it was one of the most horrible things I ever saw, grotesque things, his arms were broken about right here, both of them, and lying unnaturally, and then, His legs were broken right about here, and from here up, down, excuse me, his legs were laying behind his back. And as I looked at his hands there and his arms laying in naturally, I noticed his hands. They didn't have many fingers left, because the fingers had been scraped off on the pavement. As he flew across the pavement, he scraped it right down like sandpaper. The bone, the skin, and everything. You say you're being needlessly grotesque. No, I'm being purposely grotesque. And then I looked at his chest, and there was a hole in his chest the size of a tennis ball, and his eyes were open, but he was very dead. Now, I cannot see a can of beer without thinking about that accident. I do know that I shared this story with you I am sure you don't forget stories like this, but I cannot look at Corona beer on any case or on any bottle without wanting to kick that over and knock it down. Because I know what Corona beer will do, and I know what wine will do, and I know where it takes a lot of people that never thought it would take them there. Now, why would God not want you to do cigarettes, not want you to date that wrong person, not want you to be disobedient to your parents, not want you to have attitude with your parents, not want you to drink wine, drink beer, cuss, steal, or whatever it might be? Because he wants you to live. And if you do what you want to do, it'll bring death, at least death of your joy. And then it'll bring death to the value of your life. So there's so much more value to my life and your life when we use what we have in our lives for Jesus and the souls of men. Now, first reason is for our own sake. Is there anything in your life that if you do not deny yourself of it, you will be negatively impacted by it? Deny yourself and save your life. Do what he wants you to do in this and save your future. All right, now the second reason that we want to do this is for Jesus' sake. I right, notice what he says In verse 38, whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed. Now, when it says that God would be ashamed of us, what does that mean? Will we lose our salvation? No. It means he'll be ashamed of us. And we don't want Jesus to be ashamed of us, right? And then the final reason is for the lost man's sake. Now, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Great men of the past said, I don't care where I live, I don't care what I eat, I don't care what I wear, as long as I win people to Jesus Christ. David Brainerd was the one who said that, and David Brainerd was the man who proved that that's how he felt. He cared enough that he went to reach the American Indian, and he was seen. Sometimes with no socks on, he had given them to an Indian that he was trying to reach in a cold winter, so he had none. He would be on his knees, he would be praying in snow, and he'd be coughing up blood and phlegm because he was dying of tuberculosis as he prayed, God help me to reach the American Indian. And they were willing to deny themselves even to the death. And I'm not putting pressure on us needlessly or guilt needlessly, but I'm saying And we need to be willing to at least deny ourselves of what we want to do on our Saturdays or something else in another way. Then there was another man, Charles Spurgeon. He was given an opportunity to preach in America, but he was supposed to preach in his London church. And they said, if you come to America and preach, I'll give you $50,000 if you preach 50 sermons. That's $1,000 a sermon. You know what Spurgeon said? You can keep your 50,000. I can stay in London and see 50 souls come to Jesus. There are other people that are laying it down, all the way down. I have a missionary friend. I met him. We weren't the best of friends, but I met him and we talked. This last year, he laid down his life to the death. He was shot and he was killed because laying his life out there on the mission field for the souls of men, he felt that it was worth it. And if you take a look at Jesus, Jesus said, the souls of men are worth denying myself, taking up my cross. And he took up his cross. And now he asks us to be willing to do that for him. Now, I am learning that we do need to not talk it. We need to walk it. And there was a great man that I read about, he was in the years ago revivals, I heard about him today, and he said, do something courageous. And he was always challenging people, do something courageous, as he was trying to get them to go out and witness. I can remember the first time that I was going to go to Haiti, I was scared. When my friend came to me and said, you don't want to go there, it's dangerous. I said, well, I'm not afraid, but I was afraid. I said, what are you talking about? He says, well, they're kidnapping people. I said, oh, that got my attention. So I called up the lady and I said, I can't come to Haiti, the one who invited me. They're kidnapping people. And you know what she said? Huh, all my friends have been kidnapped. But she said, You've got to come. They need the Lord. I said, Rosie, I can't. I got a family, I got kids, I got a ministry. She said, You've got to come. You've got to come. They need the Lord. I said, Rosie, they're kidnapping people. They'll pay $10,000 or they'll cut your fingers off. I read about that. They'll kill you, and she said, you've got to come. They need the Lord, and so what am I supposed to do? This lady had friends been kidnapped, and she's over there, so I said, okay, I'll come, but I went with my brother first because I can run faster than him, but then we went, saw some people get saved, went back another time, sure enough, there was danger, went back another time, yes, there was danger, and we went several times and we saw several times people getting saved, several times dangerous situations. I remember one time I called up Rosie and she said, Mike, you can't come this time. I said, why Rosie? And she, the one who said, oh, my friend's been kidnapped. You've got to come. She said, it's too dangerous. I said, Rosie, you got to trust God. I'm coming. So I went. And then I went this last year, and I'm not setting myself up. I'm just saying, I think I'm fine at getting it. Do something courageous. Because we know who we're doing it for, and we know what's at stake, and we know that people are on the way to heaven, or on their way to hell. And I'm saying, not too many of us are really willing to deny ourselves of very much. And that is what we need to do if we're going to really follow Jesus and live. How many want your life to be exciting? Want it to be worthwhile? I'm not saying we have to go to Haiti, but let's do something. Let's deny ourselves of things for Him and for people. And let's, above all, remember who we're doing these things for. For the Christ. Christ. Let's bow our heads.